Well, good morning, everyone. I was uh, nice to be at prayer meeting for those that could make it. If you remember yesterday, if you have children, I'm just glad you showed up. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we'd like to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'd like to thank you that he is our shepherd, our good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And as we think of, of him and uh, contemplate him, we'd like to ask your blessing through the Spirit of God that we might have our minds opened to understanding as the Lord Jesus did for those disciples that day. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, uh, this week I'd like to take up the topic of the principles of the Word of God as it pertains to marriage. And I, I want you to stay with me in the discussion because at first glance you'll say, well, you know, he's just going to talk about marriage. But actually, I'm going to talk about principles from God's Word that applies to the marital realm. But I think you'll find that they'll be applicable to multiple realms in your life. Uh, an, opening, an opening story is uh, one that I'd like to take from the book of John, um, and it's John chapter 21. And the reason why I want to open with this illustration is because um, we're not trying to check off a list of Christian things to do. If you think that, you've been mistaken. We're not trying to come to the table of, of uh, Christianity today and take our survey and make sure that we all have acceptable. That's not what we're trying to do. Make no mistake that we are dedicating our lives for one purpose and one purpose alone. And it is to love the Lord Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Make no mistake, that is the greatest commandment, the second being thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. And in order to do that, I'm going to ask in our opening illustration a very, very tough question that was brought to us by the Lord Jesus to his dear apostle, or dear disciple, Peter. So in John chapter 21, you'll recognize the event. It's on the Sea of Galilee. And as they were there, the brethren, the men, had fished all night. I feel a little bit sad for them. Every time I find them fishing in the Bible, they catch nothing. I'm pretty sure they were very poor businessmen. But in this particular case, they went back to fishing, not because they were really interested in fishing, in my opinion, I think, I, excuse me, I, I think they were actually running from the Lord. And it was, um, it was Peter who said, I'm going fishing. And he took with him a total of seven individuals. That was approximately 72.5% of the Lord's workforce. And so what happened was, was they, went all, they fished all night. They caught nothing. So they're tired. They're exhausted. They, um, they're uh, hungry. And the Lord Jesus is standing on the shore. I can see it today the fog lifting off that area called Tagba today, lifting off the, off the sea, the boat just slowly coming to shore as they're pulling their nets in, tired, hungry men. They probably had bad breath and they smelled. And as they got closer to the shore, they hear this voice sort of coming out of the fog with this little glow of light on the seashore. Did you catch anything? <laughs> That's always sad, isn't it? No. How many times have they said that in all their lives with the Lord? All the time. Ain't you kidding? No. And so the Lord has breakfast cooking for them. He has fish. I think that's kind of poetic, right? You fished for fish. I actually got fish. 
You didn't need to go fishing for fish. I have the fish. And so uh, they come in and the Lord's so, he's such a gracious host. He goes like this. Hey, you guys got fish. Bring some of your fish. Come over and we'll have fish together. And then it says that he had bread. Where'd he get the bread? I was with Justin and his wife last year. They had this oven. That was kind of cool. I don't know how, did the Lord have an oven? I think it was hot bread, don't you? I mean, I don't think he'd serve cold bread, right? So anyway, it's, he's got all these guys there together. And then after they're full, he asked Peter a question, all right? And I'll just read it. Goes this, goes like this in verse 15. And so when they had eaten, bre- eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Now, I'm just going to read that verse and point out a couple of things. First of all, notice in that verse that uh, the word these is used, and many have a debate about what object he is referring to. I don't think that's relevant to the discussion. The other observation is that the, um, there is a different usage in words when the Lord Jesus said, do you love me? And Peter said, I love you, right? That's two different types of love. And I don't really think it's important that you even understand the definition of those words. What I do think it's important is to understand this question. Peter, do you love me like I love you? That's the question, isn't it? Think about it. That's, the, that's what he's really asking when he uses his particular verb for, for love. Do you love me like I love you? And Peter said, well, I don't really love you like you love me. When we talk about the principles of the word of God as applicable to marriage this week, the reigning thought that I would love to stay in your heart and soul is do you love the Lord Jesus like he loves you? Because if you do, everything else, including our most important relationships will fall under that particular umbrella. And we will do what we do in our marriage and we will do what we do in, in assembly life or church life or, or relationship or work life because we love him like he loves us. If you miss that point, then all we're really doing here is coming up with a how-to list. All we're really doing here is coming up with a checklist. That's not my purpose. That is not my goal. My goal this week is that you would love the Lord Jesus more than you walked in and walked through the doors of this camp at the end of the week versus the beginning of the week. My goal for you, as I prayed for you, that you would have an, a passion for the Savior that will govern every thought, every decision, every moment-by-moment activity, beginning with how we relate to one another. That's what I'd like to do. Okay, let's close. No, just kidding. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What time am I supposed to get in? <laughs> what time am I supposed to get in? You'll only get 40 minutes. <laughs> I know, I know. What time am I supposed to get in? <laughs> 10 till 10.20? Oh, good. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> he thinks I was kidding. I really wasn't. <laughs> All right, Genesis chapter 2. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 2. So the way the outline's going to work for you and I is that we're going to, first of all, talk about 
Some of the things that happened in the fall situation are the Lord's institution of marriage and in the fall. And those things that we talk about there will set the tone for tomorrow's discussion when we go to Ephesians chapter 5. Now I would remind you in Ephesians chapter 5 we have this great little thing there talking about marriage. And at the very end of that paragraph he says, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. And so we get this idea there's a bigger picture involved, not just man and woman. And that's what we'll highlight by beginning to look at Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 3, the outline will be as follows. We'll have... We'll have uh, the institution as God has set it in order, and then we'll have the fall, and then we'll have the results of the fall, the repercussions. So that's a simple outline. Normally we have this nice little PowerPoint thing, and we show it up there, but it's not going to work today. So let's read Genesis chapter 2, and I'm just going to read a couple of things here. Genesis chapter 2, and you'll look with me in verse 18. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to him. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the wife, and were not ashamed." Now, the reason why I opened with this passage is because of the uniqueness that is set forth. It, uh, it appears to me that uh, at least, I think it's six or seven times prior to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God is calling things good in creation. The, the one day that I don't, did not find that reference was on the second day of creation, but every other time he's calling things good. Sometimes twice in that same day he would call things good. You know, when God has a statement and he says it's good, I'm pretty sure we can rely on that, that it means that it's, it's, it's perfect in, in his demonstration, in his power, in his wisdom, in his intelligence in forming what he formed. And yet, out of all the things that he made, he says one thing is not good. And what did he say? That what, what was that one thing he said that was not good? And that was the isolation of man. That's what he said. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this to our young people. Um, Sometimes in your lives, you have witnessed marriages destroyed. And you will be tempted to think, you will be tempted to think that marriage is the problem and should be avoided at all costs. I want you to know that I don't think God thinks that. He actually said it's not good for man to be alone. But you know what the difficulty that arises in marital relationships or any relationships is not the institution. It's not the fact that God crafted this whole intangible idea. The problem is that you and I bring to the table both the selfish fallen condition and the curse. That's the problem. That's the challenge. And marriage can become one of the the most beautiful uh, orchestras that that play the harmony of God's themes throughout all all of eternity. Or it can become an anvil where the God of selfishness must die. And many a Christian will fail to recognize that marriage is the place where self has to die. If self does not die, someone else is going to get hurt. That's our problem. 
But God comes along and he says to, to, to himself, really, and to Adam, he says, you know, it's not good that you're alone. It's, it's, it needs to be different. We have to do something different about this. And he, and he says there's no one, and the word is used there, the word is used comparable. There's no one of, of similar uh, uh, equivalence. There's no one that can assist, that's the word helper, rescue you. There's no one to come along and to, to bring you out of this isolation. You need, you need a rescuer. You need an assistant. You need, you need that companionship. Now, I have several men in my family. Some of my sons, they all tell me they're lonely. They're lonely. Well, that's because that's the way it was originally made, and God saw that as not a good thing. He saw that very clearly, and so he said, you know, I need, to, I need to do something about this. Now, this helper has to be his equivalent. This companion has to be his equivalent. Now, I don't know about you, but I love dogs. Do you love dogs? I do. I do. Thank you. What kind of dog do you like? So do I. I've had two. Oh, they're great dogs. I really, you know what we have now? I don't know. It's kind of a mix. Yeah. But I love those dogs, you know, and I, they can get on the bed and they can they can they can lay on the pillow. Not all the time. And, and you know, that, that's kind of, you know, funny thing. The dog never talks. Never. Yeah, you think they smile, you know, kind of. <laughs> can I eat your steak, too? You know, no, the dog never communicates. In fact, the dog, my dog, several dogs we have, they, they're more kind of Pavlovian trained. Do you know who Pavlov was? You know, that guy, you know, the thing. it's a cool experiment. You should try it on your children one time. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, is that that's not comparable, right? Can you imagine this? I'm going to go out to a restaurant. I take my nice little dog. We go, we sit down at this tablecloth restaurant, and he gets up in the, in the, in the chair across from me and orders. That's stupid. <laughs> that doesn't happen. There's not, that is not a comparable equivalent companion, but some will say like this. Some will adopt every creature of, of nature and call them their companions. Yeah, I think they do that so they don't have to talk to each other. But you see, God says, you know, that's not how I, that's not how I see the solution to this problem defined as not good. I, I want to do this uniquely. I want to do this with, with such a unique element that forevermore Adam will recognize there is no one that could fulfill that role except this one person. And that's, what it, that's why he had the first, as we would say, divine surgery, right? The divine, first divine anesthetic, the first divine surgery. My question, and this is for Joe, Dr. McHale, did he have a scar? I want to know if he had a scar, right? I don't know. Those are the things we talk about in medicine, right? So, Divine anesthetic, divine surgery from his side, right? Takes from the rib from his side, which is another unknown medical fact that men have 23 ribs and women have 24, right? That's not true. I made that up. That's not true. Okay. Let's go back to the text. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh in its place. Verse 22, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman and brought her to man. Sorry, my computer slipped off. Now, why do, why do I say all that? Here's the deal. Up until that point, it was Adam and God who were quite busy together. I didn't read it except in the opening read. And that's that they were busy 
organizing creation. I think that's how you want to see about it. The text says that the Lord would bring, Lord God would bring animals and he would name them. And I have to say that's quite an intelligent kind of thing to be able to name all the species and all that sort of stuff. But yet that was a a statement, not so much of the intelligence of Adam, but the camaraderie and communion that Adam and God would have had together. And even though they were having that together, God still said, that's not good. We have to have a companion for you. I think that speaks volumes about how God could estimate the emotional and physical and spiritual needs of man as he made that creature. Even though they were working closely together and had that sort of camaraderie and, co- and closeness, God said, I need to, to take someone. And this one I'll take, for, unlike any other animal, I will take from your very side. That's what made him unique. That created, in essence, a unique uh, association. He be, that person belonged to Adam. It came from his side. A unique bond. They were the only two like this in all of creation. There was a unique loyalty and intimacy because that's what Adam said. He said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. And, a, and there's a real interesting play on words in the original there. And he's saying, we have a, we have a uniqueness that will be a unique loyalty and a unique marriage. How would you like it if God was the officiant at your, mess, at your marriage, right? Now, usually you say, well, he really is there and you're, you're just in the way giving the message. I know, I get that. But there was no other human beings, right? There's just Adam and there's just Eve and God's there and, and he gives this great message. It lasts only like 10 seconds, Gary, okay? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh, Wow, I've often dreamed about giving a marriage ceremony like that. All rise. And I read that out and I say, I pronounce you man and wife. Let's eat. You know, can you imagine that? That'd, I'd be shot, I'm sure. That one verse in verse 24 is repeated another. I think it's three or four times in the New Testament. One of them is in Ephesians chapter 5. One of them is in Second or 1 Corinthians, I believe. And one of them is in uh, Matthew. That, that message that God gave at that first wedding was sort of, sort of a tone setter for many things. So here's what I'm trying to say. When we look at the original marriage design, when we look at, at, at how it all came about, I think we have to understand that God was doing this for your benefit, right? God was doing this solely for your benefit. God was working in the heart Uh, of man and woman and allowing them to have a uniqueness that would supersede all other relationships. You can't have it with the trees. You can't have it with the mountains. You certainly can't have it with the bears. And you certainly can't have it with the golden retrievers. It is only a relationship that is meant to be fulfilled in that dimension, one human being to another. And then specifically, it's one, and hear me well, one male human being with another female human being. Do you understand that? I don't say that because I'm being arrogant. I say that because that's what the Word of God just said. That's what it said. And I have no problems standing on that. That's exactly what the Word of God says. So the uniqueness of it all is, is pristine. And I think we want to understand that. Now, as a point of application, I would say to you, young men and women, I would say to you this. Listen, do not picture marriage as a haunted castle in which you're afraid to creak open the doors, lest you be gobbled up by ghosts, right? Because that's what I hear. And it's not just our 
U.S. culture. It's an Indian culture. It's, it's, it's Chinese culture. It's Korea. It's all cultures. We have this fear. This is the enemy being succe- successful at destroying the pristine beauty of the original design. That's what the enemy's doing. Because if he can destroy that, then he can destroy the reflectiveness of that picture to the glory of Christ the bridegroom and his church the bride. And thus he would take great efforts to destroy that. And I would like to set the tone straight, set the table straight, and simply say, I think God saw from the very word go that it's actually good for man and woman to dwell together. That's the inference by that phrase. It's not good for you to be alone. So what is good? It is good that man man and woman are together. That's the good part. That rectified that one phrase of all of the creative elements in the first six days. Can you imagine that? Why do we go around and we think that marriage is now this haunted mansion that if we open it up, we'll lose our freedom and we'll forever be lost in time and eternity? I don't know. Maybe you're just stupid or something. Right, but that's not the Word of God. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. That's not very nice. But that's not what the Word of God says. I think we need to get rid of those fears, and we actually need to go back and say, you know, it's actually a good thing. So, gentlemen and ladies, I would want to encourage you that it's a good thing. We've been married for 30, almost 31 years, and I have only one regret. I would have married her earlier, but it was illegal. Right? That's, what, that's true. It's true. It, it was illegal. I want you to know that we've had a delightful marriage. We have nine children. I love them all. I love them because they remind me of, her mo- of their mother. That's why I love, I mean, not to mention the fact that they're special. Of course they are. <laughs> but they remind me of her mother, of their mother. That's why it's precious to me. You see, I, I think those are the things that, that we want to, to not, get, not, not get lost in the shuffle. Those are things that... Uh, have uh, arguments laid against them that we have sort of adopted and raised themselves up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Those things need to be diffused and brought down into subject under the knowledge of Christ himself. Now, having said that, obviously we ran into some problems along the way, have we not? Let me ask you this way. Has anybody ever, who's married here, ever had a disagreement with your spouse? (laughs) Dumb question, wasn't it? 30, yeah, <laughs> only 33 fights. <laughs> right, right, right. No, of course not. We, we recognize there's some friction along the way. I mean, two people trying to share the same tube of toothpaste. We get it. We get it. All right. And the question should be asked is, well, what happened? Steve, you're talking about this fantastic marriage. God was the officiant. He creates it so that at the end of the day, there is total transparency between the man and the woman. What happened to this equation? What destroyed it? Well, what destroyed it was not God. That's the thing Satan would want you to believe. That God made something that's, that's been uh, 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 faulty from the word go. And that's not true. What happened was Genesis chapter 3. That's where we want to spend some time for the next 15 minutes. I got my eye on the clock, brother. Okay, here we go. Verse, th- uh, verse 1, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty or cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said to you, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's wrong with that statement? Anybody? Challenging. Challenging. Very good, very good. Was it accurate? It was not accurate. How was it inaccurate? Okay, didn't specify. Good. What's that? 
Thank you. Thank you. What did it make God look like? Yes. It made him look too tight, didn't it? It made him look like God was just sort of like, you know, stingy. Right? Read it. We'll read it again. It goes like this. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree? You hear that? What is being done to the character of God at this point? Impugned. Thank you, Robert. Impugned. God's character is being slightly but definitely altered. Slightly but definitely altered. That theme goes through the next several verses of this paragraph. It goes like this. And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the trees of the garden. That part's true. And notice what she added. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, we shall, uh, uh, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor you shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she obviously added the touching part, right? Now, why is that so important? Is it, is it a big deal to say that? Yeah, I mean, what? I mean, if I had a child, I would have said that. Don't touch the tree! Your fingers will fall off! You know, I would have done that. I, I, don't, want to be, I don't want him to get near it, right? Now, why, 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 would he, why did she say that? Well, I think what's happening here is that she is ever so slightly buying in to this alteration of the character of God. See, God, God said, you, you can't even touch it. You can't even go near you know, that. She's just slightly grabbing on to that kernel of impugning the character of God. I think that's what she's doing by adding that statement. Now, why am I making a big deal about this? Because these tentacles of distrust show up in the, in the relationship realm quite quickly. Now let's go on. goes next. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. True or, true or false? false? False. Thank you, William. Thank you. Good job. The 10-year-old theologian rescues us again. All right. You shall not surely die. That's an absolute now bold-faced lie. Do you remember what it said before? You shall surely die. In the day you eat, it, you eat it, you shall surely die. Now, the question, which is more theological, is what does he mean by death? Does it mean that you die physically? Does it mean that you die spiritually, as defined in Second Thessalonians chapter 1? Does it mean do you die emotionally? What does it mean? And the answer is, I think it means all of them. I think it means all of them. But now, moving on from there, let's see what happens in the E's heart. Verse 6, or verse 5. This is what Satan says. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that phrase, be like God, knowing good and evil, or the phrase like God, that's the killer. Because that's the one that comes out of the Isaiah and Ezekiel passages where Lucifer says, I will be like the Most High. It's a different title than the one here used, but it's still the same idea that you would be ascending a superior role in which your decision-making would stand independent of the God in heaven. That's really the, that's the, really, uh, the hook and the, and the bait, isn't it? And so what does she do? She looks at the fruit, and she does everything that has to deal with her physical senses. Notice this. And she saw that the, food, the, that it, the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. Now, some have correlated those to the first John passage about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And I can see that and I would agree with it. But my point is simply this. She's taking everything that has to deal physically, emotionally, and she is putting it above the word of God. Thus, 
at, at, that's where we're reversing the order, right? So when God came, it was his word that governed our mind, will, and emotions that then governed our physical activity. Here what we do is we turn the triangle upside down and we make our, our physical appetites king over our mind, will, and emotions and we make the word of God shrink so that it's not only, it is now disobeyed. And that is exactly what happens in the flesh. That is how the flesh thinks. That is the nature of sin. And we take this whole dynamic where the word of God is to be supreme, is to be the one that is obeyed and govern all the physical elements of our, uh, of our tastes and our emotions and our will and our mind, and we reverse it so that now everything, everything that has to deal with our physical appetites and mind, will, and emotions has, pre, has preference and predilection over the word of God. And that's exactly the theme of every false religion today. You think about it. Every false religion somehow, some way, tries to deal with these physical appetites and lusts. Think about paganism and think about the days back in uh, uh, the uh, Roman mythology and Greek mythology. What did it all end, end in? Temple prostitution. What about Baal worship? How did that end? That ended in, in exalting the reproductive cycle of life. Even today, we have religious, false religious thinking that exalts at some level the physical appetites. You say, well, what about those who, who, uh, who are uh, aesthetic in their reasoning and trying to bring their physical appetites under control, such as Buddhism and that kind of thing? Well, that co- that's covered for us in Colossians. It says that's worthless to control those physical appetites. There's only one thing that controls those physical appetites, and it's not some sort of system of religion or system of thought, but it is how God can reverse the whole process. He can give you a new nature. A nature that doesn't think this way. A nature that doesn't act this way. A nature that is consistent with the nature of Christ called the Spirit of God. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah, that's really brilliant. I don't know how God thought of all this. I wish, I wish I knew, but he just does. It's nice. So here we are. We have this whole thing that happens. Now, what I didn't emphasize in the reading was this phrase here. She also ate and gave to her husband with her. Do you see that preposition with? I noticed that the sun's over here, so I, I'm kind of always going to the shady spot. So I'm sorry if I misskipped the middle. <laughs> Do you notice that preposition with? In my own research, I found that that word is about 90% or more times used in with in terms of proximity, as if I'm standing right next, sorry, right next to the person. Not off in the back 40 naming a few animals, but right there. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that Adam was front row, center stage, watching it all happen. How do you know that? Because God calls him out on it when we get to the part about the curse. He actually says that you listen to the voice of your wife rather than my voice, and then he tells him the exact command that he was to listen to. I think God was underscoring with a highlighter of, of, of eternity saying, this is exactly what you did wrong. You knew what was wrong, and this is covered in the New Testament. You knew what was wrong. You knew what was in play, and yet you spoke not a word. You simply received it. It says, Paul says it, Eve was, Eve was lied to. She was fooled. Adam was not, and he did it. That's the greater part, isn't it? When you know what's wrong, and you do what's wrong anyway. 
that bespeaks of a total voluntary decision on your part to disobey the authority. If you're fooled or you just had a lack of a knowledge base, a lot of times we could say, well, now you know. But then, with Adam, it had nothing to do with knowledge base. It had nothing to do with being fooled. It had everything to do with making a voluntary personal decision to basically say, I will be like God and make my decisions independent of you. That's what was happening. That nature, when that was, when that was made and Adam partook and Eve, was fo- and Eve was fooled, what happened there was we adopted, get this now, we adopted the nature of Satan. How do you know that? Well, the Lord Jesus was having a conversation with some Pharisees one day. And in the conversation with the Pharisees, he says, you are like your father, the devil. I was hoping Joe would preach on that passage in the gospel message. Yes, that's a very effective passage, right? You are like your, your, your father, the devil. Can you imagine that in an open-air meeting? You might be shot at. But nonetheless, he spoke what is true. What we did is we adopted this independent sort of uh, mindset, and not just as if we're co-equal. We are making ourselves above the authority of God. This is what Satan was after in all of his ornateness. He wanted the authority that would would be one above God, so to speak. So he's able to answer to no one. This is what we adopted to ourselves. And you see it come out. I see it in my own life today. I hate it when I see that ugliness of my old self come to life. I hate it. This is what's there. So what happened from this beautiful moment of God's presiding as the officiant to now where we are today was this independent nature that always shakes its fist at God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. You're able to bring the pride low and those who question, what are you doing? See, independence of God. That's what basically pride is. And that's what we bring in as a fundamental element. And that has a corrosive effect. How do you know that? Well, let's read on. We have a few minutes to find out. It goes like this. We'll look in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Interesting fig leaves. Out of all the trees, they could have picked fig leaves, very large leaves, and yet never covers anything. You see, we can't cover up this independent, sinful spirit, can we? It is always there. It is a corrosive, it is a, a, a charcoal-like element that will forever be there. And, that's, and it's only, the only way to get rid of it is through it dying. And thus the Savior would come and be made sin for us, dying, being treated as my old nature deserved. That's what was happening can't ever cover it up it says there's just nothing you can do to make it go away except the blood of the savior that's it and so what happened in the very next few lines is this it says this the eyes of both of them were open they had this immediate awareness of their of their state it was no longer innocence it was no longer the beauty of transparency now there's a beauty there's an introduction of shame and of a sort of horror they try to cover up themselves and notice this and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day there's several firsts in these first 3 chapters of genesis and the very first this is the this is a record of one of the most important firsts it's the very first time god would ask a question and there would be no answer do you think that God walked in the cool of the day a lot with Adam in that time? I think so. 
Do you think they were always together? I think so. They were naming the animals. It would have been a very desperate breach of protocol to not have Adam and God walking together in the cool of the day. And for the first time ever, this question was asked. Adam, where are you? Now, what's terrible is he wasn't out busy doing some other thing. He was hiding behind the tree. He was hiding, trying to see, watching the Spirit of God, echoing this question, and you knowing, you knowing that you are purposefully holding back. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that drove a knife in the heart of God? I sure it, does, it would do me. When I, when I have a situation either with my children, my wife, or whatever, and, and, and we have this, this tension between us, this sin, and the relationship is so, so corrupted, I'll call out, and, and one of us distanced from each other, oh, that's even worse. You see, that's a picture of what sin does. I think that is a terrible thing that sin does to, to the heart of God. just puts a knife in it, doesn't it? Adam, where are you? Adam! Couldn't take it anymore. Comes, as it were, like next, the bush next door. You think God knew where he was hiding? Yeah, I do. And I, there was, no one was hiding anything, right? And then he goes like this. He says, uh, where are you? He said, well, I, I, I heard your voice and I was afraid. I was naked and I hid myself. God cuts to the chase. How did, how did you know you were naked? He said, who told you you were naked? Now at that moment, I think Adam should have said, no one told me. I ate the fruit. What if Adam would have confessed right there? What if Adam would have broke? And said, I have sinned. I wonder what would have happened. You know, those three words are the most important words in all of Christian expression. I have sinned. And for some reason, those three words are what keeps a soul out of heaven and deposits them in hell. Those three words are what keeps a child of God from having face-to-face communion with your heavenly Father. I, I have to stop here. We obviously, obviously need to continue this tomorrow, but I want to just build the foundation. So tomorrow we'll finish up what we started and we'll continue on. So let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to open the Word of God. We would like to ask you to allow your spirit to speak through his word, through your word, so that we might have the understanding of Christ and also the obedience of him, of your son, in the manner that he obeyed. In Jesus' name, amen.